0: good evening everyone Uh, good morning for those uh, who are following this program uh, in america let's wait just a few seconds for technical issue then we'll start our uh, event Okay, good uh, evening and good morning again. And uh, I'm very glad I have really the pleasure to moderate uh, this event, to discuss the newly book. For those who didn't see the book, this is the book. That's the way it looks like. Neither settler nor native, the making and unmaking of permanent minorities by um, our dear friend and uh, colleague, Professor Mahmoud uh, Mamdani. The book just came out from Harvard uh, University Press. And then uh, um, after a short introduction by Professor Mamdani, it would be followed by uh, some remarks by Professor Rana Barakat from Birzet University. Before we start the event, let me introduce the, our two speakers in short, though I'm sure that most of you know both of them, but let me see just a few words about each of them. Professor Mahmoud Mamdani is Herbert Lehman, Professor of Government and Professor of Anthropology and Middle Eastern Studies, South Asian and African Studies at Columbia University, and the Director of the Mikireri Institute of Social Research in Kampala. He is the author of Citizen and Subject, When Victims Become Killers, and Good Muslims, Bad Muslim. Professor Rana Barakat is Assistant Professor of History at Birzeit University in Palestine. She is currently working on a book, monograph titled Lifta and Resisting the Musification of Palestine, Indigenous History of the Nakba which advances an indigenous understanding of time, space, and memory in Palestine by focusing on the details of the people and place of Lifta village over time. The plan for this evening, Professor Mamdani will open, then uh, Rana, Professor Barakat, uh, would uh, give her comments. We'll give uh, the floor back to Professor Mamdani to uh, give some reply to Uh, Professor uh, Barakat uh, comments, then I might have one or two questions to them, and then we'll open the floor for questions. Now, please send your questions in the Q&A, given the fact that we are having uh, so many participants, we cannot open it completely to open discussion. We will take the questions through the um, Q&A, as you see in the bottom of the screen for those who are not um, used to work with uh, with Zoom. So please, Professor Mamdani, your introduction.
1: Thank you very much, Raif. Um, excuse me if I address you by first name, that's sort of the convention, more or less in the American Academy and it's become a habit with me. Um, I, I thank the uh, Institute for uh, this invitation to present a a Zoom uh, discussion on my book and I will try and uh, reduce what is a 400 plus pages book uh, into less than 4,000 words. (coughs) Uh, This is a book about the nation state and about uh, post-colonial modernity. The introduction opens with a history of the two phases of the nation state, non-liberal and liberal. The nation state was born in Iberia in 1492. Its agenda was summed up by a single slogan, one country, one people, one religion. This state project uh, fired relations between majority set fire to relations between majority and minorities within its boundaries, set in motion processes of ethnic cleansing, specifically of Muslims and Jews. This was followed by a century of religious wars in Europe. This was the first phase, the non-liberal phase in the making of the nation state. The liberal solution to religious wars was the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. Two key components of the modern state were born at Westphalia, religious toleration at home and the reciprocal guarantee of sovereignty abroad. The liberal solution was put forward in John Locke's treatise on tolerance. Referring to England, Catholics can be tolerated if they renounce any political support of the Pope or of any power outside England. This is how Locke formulated the key tenet of the liberal theory of the nation state. The liberal notion of the nation state turned majority and minority into permanent political identities. Only the majority has sovereignty. The minority must not participate in sovereignty. The notion of a sovereign majority alongside non-sovereign minorities was the original liberal sin. In this book, I explore the export of the notion of different kinds of citizens, sovereign and non-sovereign from the US to South Africa, to Nazi Germany, and finally to Israel. At the same time, the book explores the construction of an epistemological project that grounded the political distinction between sovereign and non-sovereign subjects in an epistemic and legal distinction. Beginning with a distinction confined to religious groups, it was extended to a civilizational difference between races and tribes. This development is explored in some detail in the chapter on Sudan. This is also a book about the United States as a founding experience in modern colonialism and about the Indian reservation as the site where core institutions of modern colonialism were forged. In addition, this is a book about extreme violence as a consequence of modern nation state building in the post colonies. I contrast two ways of thinking of extreme violence. The first is the criminal model popularized by Nuremberg. The second is the political model, born of the transition from apartheid in South Africa. What can we learn from the failure of denazification in Germany and the relative success of post-apartheid South Africa. Finally, the book asks, what is transportable in the South African experience? What does South Africa have to teach us? To answer this question, the last chapter takes a fresh look at Israel-Palestine, the most intractable political problem in the contemporary world through South African lenses. In the time at my disposal, I would like to comment on four issues. The first is an issue of great significance in the U.S. today. How do we distinguish colonial conquest from racial domination? Second, what is the difference between an immigrant and a settler? This is a issue of relevance to all settler colonies, in particular the U.S., South Africa, and Israel. Third, What does it mean to think of identity as historical and political, born of a particular form of the state as opposed to something natural and permanent? Finally, I point to the need to think of an alternative to the nation state so as to decouple the nation from the state. Let me start with the US. American Indians and African-Americans, what is in a name? how should we name the pre-Columbian communities of Americas as Indian or as native? What difference would it make if the National Museum of the American Indian right now in Washington DC is called the National Museum of the Native American? Why is it that the 1964 Civil Rights Act did not apply to Indians in reservations, but did to African Americans and other minorities so that a separate Indian Civil Rights Act had to be passed in 1968. The two acts are not the same. The 1964 act is constitutionally binding whereas the 1968 Indian Act is only advisory. Reservation Indians are not and have never been rights-bearing citizens of the United States in a constitutional sense. The reservation was a creation of the US. The reservation is a separate polity, separate from the United States. The Europeans who came to America were not immigrants, they were settlers. Whether they seek equality or advantage, immigrants come to join existing polities. Settlers come to displace existing polities and establish their own exclusive sovereignty. Indian reservations are not part of the sovereign state we call the United States. In the words of Chief Justice John Marshall, mid 19th century, reservations are quote, domestic dependent colonies. Politically, the term Indian tribal sovereignty masks colonial domination. Reservation Indians are legally wards of Congress. Reservation authorities are overseen by a vast federal bureaucracy known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's no different from the colonial bureaucracy that governed any indirect rule colony in Africa. The Indian reservation was part of a two-state solution, a sovereign state alongside a non-sovereign protectorate. The two-state solution was Lincoln's contribution to the second half of the 19th century. It was the answer to the problem. What do you do? with Indians who had survived the genocide. The two-state solution was a permanent solution to the Indian question. America also originated the notion of differentiated citizenship with only some participating in sovereignty. Until 1921, Indians were nationals but not citizens. After that, Indians had to be naturalized as citizens. They had first to be purged as members of Indian polities before they could be naturalized as the U.S. citizens. Africans were enslaved individually and then segregated in thousands of plantations. Indians were colonized as a people. Colonized Indians and African slaves represent two different strategies of domination with radically different consequences. Reservation Indians have a different relationship to the U.S. from that of African Americans. Racial and colonial domination are not the same, even if racial discrimination is common to both. Economically, the American Indian symbolized stolen land; the African slave embodied stolen labor. Politically, Indians were governed in a protectorate, as part of a two-state solution. African slaves were racially segregated within a one-state polity and governed in separate plantations. The two-state solution was born in America. It was then exported to Germany. Whereas Hitler wanted to extinguish all minorities in Germany, post-Holocaust Germany looked for a two-state solution. Instead of reintegrating Jews into Germany, it supported a state exclusively for Jews. The Israelis then pushed for their own two-state solution, starting with the Nakba and now a continuing Nakba. It is worth noting that South Africa is the only place where apartheid failed to press home a two-state solution. The one-state solution has provided a more suitable political frame for the development of the struggle against Jim Crow and racial domination, as it did in South Africa also. A multi-state solution, as in the Indian case, fragmented and isolated the colonized. It is what the South Africans called Bantustans. Even if it has proceeded by fits and starts and sometimes even receded, the one-state framework has made possible the development of alliances. Does two-state solution explain the continued isolation and colonial subjugation of the reservation Indian? South Africa. South African settlers attained state independence in 1910. Over the next few years, settlers studied how Indians were governed in North America. <coughs> Excuse me. Three key elements of the American model were imported to South Africa homeland, traditional authority, and customary law. Every tribe must be territorially contained in a homeland. Every homeland must be administered by a homeland authority, sanctioned as trans historical and traditional, and thus not subject to being elected. This traditional authority must enforce a customary law on the homeland, also transhistorical and thus changing, with one proviso that custom be excised of all practices or notions that settlers considered repugnant to civilization. South Africa was not the only one that learned from the US, so did Germany and Hitler. Hitler too learned that genocide is doable and therefore thinkable and that it was possible to legislate a hierarchy of citizens, some first class, others second and third class, as with African-Americans, Indian citizens after 1921, and then Puerto Ricans. Hitler appointed a committee of lawyers to study American citizenship laws as preparation to draft Nuremberg laws for Jews. This learning process has been documented in detail by James Q. Whitman of Yale in his book, Hitler's American Model. Nazism was a striving for a purified nation state, one that would cleanse the nation of all minorities in non-liberal fashion, not just distinguish a sovereign majority from non-sovereign minorities. Denazification failed because Nuremberg shut its eyes to the political project that had inspired and propelled Nazism. There was an American debate on Nazism after the Second World War. Was Germany liberated or occupied? Was Nazism a state project or a social project? Who should be held responsible for Nazism? The nation or the state? Nazi leaders or German people? The American consensus was that responsibility for Nazism lay with the German people. At Nuremberg and after, millions were considered criminally culpable yet Nazism was never probed as a political project. A similar debate unfolded in Germany, particularly among German left intellectuals, the most prominent being Franz Neumann and Herbert Marcuse. Their answer, Nazism was a nation state project, a project of both the Nazi state and the folk nation to eradicate the state territory of national minorities like Jews and Roma. Nazism was above all a political project. Their conclusion was that to succeed denazification would have to be a joint project of allies and anti-fascist Germans, but Americans were unwilling to do so. The Soviets were though only temporarily and not after the Berlin uprising. I come to Israel. Are Jewish people in Israel settlers or immigrants? The Jewish population of Mandate Palestine belonged to three groups, natives, immigrants, and settlers. The last being the group that wanted to establish an exclusive state. Palestinians inside Israel cannot participate in sovereignty. They have rights, even political rights, including the right to vote, but they cannot participate in power. Israel is a Jewish state. There is in Israel-Palestine an ongoing debate on the merits of a one state versus a two state solution. It calls on us to think through the difference between colonial and racial subjugation, even where racism plagues both. In American terms, it is the alternative represented by the African slave and the colonized Indian. For a third alternative, we have to look at the South African transition from apartheid. I trace the turning point in anti-apartheid politics in South Africa to the 1970s. Anti-apartheid politics before 1970s reproduced the racialized architecture of apartheid. Each racial group organized separately as defined by apartheid power. Africans as ANC, Indians as Natal Indian Congress, coloreds as colored people's Congress, and whites as Congress of Democrats. The apartheid mindset was broken only in the 1970s. The key initiative came from the student movement, starting with Black students, led by Biko, when Black students left the liberal white student organization, formed their own separate body, and went on to organize township dwellers, starting with Soweto. Left in the wilderness, radical white students turned to organizing hostile workers on the fringes of townships. Out of this experience was born an epistemological awakening that white and Black are political identities and that political identity is historical, not natural. Black said Biko is not a color. If you're oppressed, you are Black. This was also the turning point in the Africano journey, from being junior partners of British colonialism to becoming a part of the anti-apartheid coalition. Born in the 70s and 80s, The South African moment signified three epistemological shifts. It went from mobilizing opposition to apartheid to championing an alternative to apartheid. From calling for a state of the majority, the national majority, the black majority, to championing a state of all the oppressed. From opposition to whites, it went on to oppose white power. It depoliticized race and historicized the notion of majority and minority. 1994 led to the birth of a new political community. This outcome should be seen as the alternative to Nuremberg, which opened the gate to two purified states, a Germany without Jews and an Israel without Palestinians. The anti-apartheid struggle was not directed against a single center from multiple centers. Sometimes it included contradictory initiatives. Take the example of the anti-apartheid boycott which was directed from outside the country and the internal political struggle which demanded the right to participate in the political process alongside its reform. Whereas the anti-apartheid boycott made no distinction between Israel society and state calling for boycott of both. The internal political struggle proceeded by building alliances with all sectors of white society, so long as they did not openly and actively support the apartheid state, excuse me, I meant South African state and society. Apartheid power was not defeated, but it did not win. The situation in the mid 1980s can only be described as a stalemate. Why then did apartheid power agree to negotiate in 1990 Two considerations made it rethink its alliance on a military strategy. One, the possibility that anti-apartheid mobilization may spread from the townships to Bantustans. The second, the possibility of an even scarier outcome. Boers realized that the hitherto pro-apartheid Boer intelligentsia, white intelligentsia, was gradually beginning to abandon the project of apartheid power. Finally, lessons. Palestine. The Palestinian population is today fragmented into three, colonized citizens of Israel, residents of the occupied territories, and refugees. Since 1948, each has been the source of a different political initiative. Refugees were the social base of the armed struggle. The first intipada moved the social base of Palestinian resistance from refugees to Israel-Palestine. The Second Intifada called for an inclusion of Palestinians in the political process, calling for a state of all citizens. After that came BDS. Anchored in the occupied territories, BDS calls for an external boycott and the world to divest from Israel. The lesson of South Africa for BDS, in my view, is to rethink its project as more political than moral. This means building on the gains of Balad, and adopting a political strategy that will welcome anti-Zionist and non-Zionist Jews into the larger movement for a decolonization of the Israeli state. The South African lesson is rather than think of Balad and BDS as representing strategic alternatives, Palestinians should embrace both as standing for complementary strategies. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mahmoud. That was, um, as you used to say, plentiful. I think we have uh, lots of materials uh, to discuss. Um, So please, uh, Rana, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you. Um, Thank you for this kind invitation to be in conversation today. I want to thank the Institute for Palestine Studies and. Particular uh, Lara Al-Best. Neither settler nor native, the making and unmaking of permanent minorities is an ambitious work that continues Mahmoud Mamdani's groundbreaking contributions to the politics of comparative colonialism. In this history of colonial pasts and presents, Mamdani asks: who is a citizen and who is a sojourner? And who belongs to the political community? These are the questions that frame the work. In this invitation towards the reimagining of political community, Mamdani offers an extended reflection on decolonizing the political. He charts the historically contingent fortunes of political community and political identity and argues that neither are permanent. Mamdani posits history writing is necessarily the inception of decolonization. History is nat- national mythology. Indeed, the discipline of history capital H, is both a component of and a vessel of European modernity and its most loyal child, the nation-state. Here Mamdani asks who narrates which pasts and towards what ends. Mamdani, as he just described, traces modernity's inception to 1492 with the fall of Andalus and later to the adoption of a Westphalian concept of uh, sovereignty. He begins with the settler colonial history of the United States, narrating the past to make the colonial present and, in his words, its colonial self visible. The US comes into view as a template for colonial and racial domination, traveling from Nazi Germany to apartheid South Africa, to South Sudan and to the Israeli apartheid state. One key technology of this US model was the reservation, a crucial site of settler power. He explains, quote, the reservation system was supposed to be the civilizing institution that rendered Indians fit for citizenship, away on the road to one state, which became the two state solution. Mamdani goes on to explain true citizenship has always eluded American Indians on reservations. Citizenship has been a second class citizenship without actual rights, rendering tribal sovereignty as colonial paternalism in the language of self-determination. End quote. This multiplicity of states as well as an ever-deferred politics resonates all too pain, pain, painfully in this virtual room. This language of deferred politics and an infantilized colonial subject was precisely the logic fueling the League, League of Nations mandates on Palestine, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq just after the First World War. Nationalism, Mamdani argues, is necessarily exclusionary and exercises this exclusion through extreme violence. This extreme violence is a political question rather than the victim justice model of individual criminality that Nuremberg and subsequent human rights-based logics would propose. Indeed, Mamdani shows that the victim and perpetrator models of criminal justice reify the national as a permanent feature. As such, national belonging is not simply codified in law, it precedes it. Mamdani suggests that Indian societies, his words, were formed by their resistance to and embrace of colonialism. Likewise, he questions how post-colonial nationalisms and Palestinian nationalism under the strain of ongoing colonialism replicate the separation and, and exclusion the nation state necessitates. Perhaps in this entanglement, it is this entanglement that can lead us to Mamdani's most invigorating provocation Another quote, the settler and the native are joined, neither can exist in isolation, End quote. He draws on three phases of South African anti-apartheid movement to come to this conclusion. It was not the professional revolutionaries, he argues, who brought apartheid to its knees. Instead, it was instead the Stephen Biko's Black consciousness movement and subsequent uprisings, such as the now canonical Soweto revolt, labor strikes and student movement. Apartheid became ungovernable when resistance divorced itself from modes of native control. And when, in Biko's vision, the resistance of the oppressed and dispossessed confronted the tyranny of the apartheid state, as well as the political categories that state imposed. Mamdani suggests that once the state appeared untenable enough to whites, whose privilege was structured within the state, an alternative vision could prevail. While Mamdani recognizes the unfinished nature of, disma- of the dismantling of the apartheid state in South Africa, as well as the transformative power of the popular movement that brought this about. He also suggests that political decolonization could not have happened had the white minorities' anxieties not been placated within the alternative vision of a new kind of state whereby white settlers could become white immigrants. In Memdani's formulation, neither settler nor native for everyone became survivors in the post-apartheid state. Perhaps tonight in this particular grouping of people, what will inspire us the most is Memdani's reading of Zionism. Memdani explains the dual phenomenon of Zionization and Judaization in the making of the settler state and settler society. Zionization, as he explains it, made the nation a legal and social endeavor and Judaization made the society whereby non-Jews must be expunged and non-conformist Jews were made to conform into a singular white Ashkenazi identity of Jewishness. In other words, the modern imagination of a Jewish people. Drawing on the South African moment and and in anticipation for the Palestine moment, Mamdani distinguishes between settlers and immigrants to chart a future of the de-Zionization of Israel. Immigrants are, as Mamdani just described, unarmed, in search for a homeland and not a state. And this homeland can be shared. Settlers, on the other hand, have weapons and a militarized national agenda and cannot conceive of a homeland without a nation state. To bring about a transformation from settler to immigrant requires an epistemic revolution. This revolution, in his words, quote, would involve the depoliticization of Jewish and Palestinian identity, so that Israel may be a rights-protecting democracy rather than a servant of a permanent national majority, end quote. Because in Zionist mythology, the settlers imagined themselves as returning natives. They rendered the Palestinians, when they saw them, as squatters, excuse me, squatters, temporary occupants subject to displacement because the land is not rightfully theirs. As such, ethnic cleansing and apartheid were and remain foundational features of the Israeli state and Israeli society. Because of this return myth, the Jewish state established sovereignty over the land they neither possessed nor occupied. This has been referred to by some as the particularity or exceptionality of settler colonialism in Palestine. That is, Zionism differs from other cases of settler colonial invasion because embedded in the mythology not the making of a people, but rather the resurrection of one. The colonial self, to use Memdani's concept, is in this claim a biblically sanctioned one, thereby not ignoring, but rather negating itself as colonial. The depoliticization of Zionism as a Jewish identity that finally undoes this mythology will logically recognize that the people of the land are and have been Palestinians. That this will require an epistemic revolution for Zionists is not in doubt. But does the same hold for Palestinians and Palestinian identity? Put more precisely, people of the land are not, of any, not, are not in need of mythology the likes of this. So what does putting them in juxtaposition in this way actually do? With this, let me conclude with some questions that this in, inspiring work poses. One, while the national component of the nation state's dismantlement is clear throughout this book, where does the state fit into this vision of decolonization? Can the state defect from its settler character and the structural inequalities of capitalism? And how do we envision the dismantlement of its hierarchical economic and institutionalized power? After all, we know that participatory democracy is not necessarily representational democracy. Given how citizenship has has been manipulated and employed to further settler racism, and given the current state of liberal iterations of equality falling short of any kind of accountability or justice, can citizenship actually dismantle the state? Two, must historical narratives and storytelling remain confined to a state-based political imagination of community? And can the category of survivor work as a post-nation? Given the history and ongoing presence of indigenous peoples, Leanne Simpson carefully reveals narrative forms as central to indigenous survival and resurgence. She describes a political community that transcends the politics of recognition, a politics that fuels settler colonial power in liberal democracies. Along these same lines, survivance, a concept offered by Gerald Weisner, reveals the endurance of indigenous cultures beyond and outside of colonialist trappings of absence and powerlessness. Active presence over time, past, present and future, not only breaks the ahistorical fallacy of the fate of the Red Indian, unfortunately famously adopted by Yasser Arafat, but also destroys the idea of the native as an essential and powerless victim. The ongoing vitality of indigenous resistance, in Idle No More, Standing Rock, Monokea, and the land back movement highlights the power of survivance. Linked to this past and present is the idea, the practice, and the possibility of peoplehood. How do we position peoplehood before, across, and after European modernity and its nation-state offspring? You powerfully evidence how the U.S. manipulated tribal sovereignty in the carceral logics of the settler state. But what of unseated sovereignty of indigenous peoples? As one of the many core questions of indigenous scholars in some of the same geographies Mamdani covers, indigenous sovereignty and citizenship in the settler state as a liberal form of recognition are often in opposition. Herein lies the limitations of settler colonial comparisons. Settler colonialism as as elimination is not the case in all of the geographies Mamdani covers. Settlers in South Africa did not work to erase people in the same way settlers in North America or or Israel have. How can a comparative analysis account for this? Moreover, settler states do not function in the same way. Federal recognition in the US is distinctly different than Canada, for example, and both are very different than Israeli politics of non-recognition. How can a generative comparative analysis work through and with with these differences? This is an opportunity for me to ask about Palestinian consciousness in light of what we've learned of the concept of survivance. I wanna pose two internal questions here. One, how can a continuous history, rather than, rather than one divided into phases, as Mandani relates and many historians follow, change the way we think about the past and the future and our political imagined community? That is, rather than historicizing an outside and inside of Palestine since 1948, focusing on outside in a revolutionary phase in the 70s, and inside after the first Intifada in 1987, what happens when we see the actual continuities of Palestinians that also existed throughout this time period? No doubt the first intifada is an important moment, but rather than a break, what if we see it as a part of a long story of ongoing Palestinian resistance, a resistance that is far older than the state of Israel? Moreover, where are the possibilities of reimagining political community in relation to indigenous resistance and survival, survivance? Second, in this context, might politics and political parties be read in complement rather than in isolation? Rather than focusing on one party or one particular politician in 48 Palestine, can politics also be read on a, con- on a continuum in relation to a liberationist practice, praxis and through an attention to the conceptual possibilities involved in survivance? This might help us understand BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, more clearly. It is a movement, not a solution, as Memdani explains in critiques. That is, BDS does not provide a political vision. It is explicitly not a solution, nor does it it provide a final outcome or answer to the Palestine question. But it is a part of a large tapestry of Palestinian politics. It is the floor, not the ceiling, as often proclaimed by activists. That is, BDS's politics is not revolutionary but it is about cultivating solidarity. It is also about accountability in the forms it can take. It is one of the many parts of the longer story and large tapestry that I just mentioned that works to make the continuation of Zionism untenable. I will conclude with the question of de-Zionization of Israel as an epistemic revolution. Where do we locate peoplehood and alternative communities in this vision? Is, design, is the de of Israel, Palestine? Thank you.
0: Thanks a lot, Rana. So I'll give the floor back to you Mahmoud if you have until seven minutes, if you want to react, first thoughts um, on what you've heard
1: okay thank you very much um rana thank you so much for uh very considered a response a very serious reading of the text um and uh, as raif has just said uh, mine will be a very preliminary response uh, a response which will not try and be comprehensive in terms of all the issues you've raised, but take some of what I think are key issues um, in your your presentation. Um, Settlers, natives, settlers, immigrants, natives. Uh, What does it mean to depoliticize? Zionist and Palestinian identity. Uh, Zionism is different uh, because it's not about the making of a people. It's different from South Africa. It's different from America. It's not about the making of a people, but it's about the resurrection of some. If I was going to look for a historically more poignant uh, comparison to the zionist project uh, i would look at the african-american project there have been two major uh, visions of of the african-american project one was defined by marcus garvey and the marcus garvey vision was African-Americans must return to Africa, to the homeland. Not as natives come home, not simply as natives come home, but as civilized natives come home. So that the state they construct would be a state of the civilized natives. The natives who had not left home must be subjects in this state. And that is indeed how African Americans constructed Liberia and they constructed Sierra Leone. The other vision, the alternative vision, was the Du Bois vision. The Du Bois vision was not let my people go but let my people stay. The African American future is right where they are in America. And the project must be to build a different, a new, a reimagined citizenship within the US, which would transform not only the position of the African Americans, but the position of all residents within the U.S. and eventually the very nature of America as a state. Well, history has shown the results because both visions were implemented at different times. Ultimately, African Americans recoiled from the Garbiate vision and Africans resisted it. the Du Bois vision prevailed. In the divisions which came later on, uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, there was no attempt to resurrect uh, uh, the Garvey back to Africa as a, as, a, as a vision. So maybe when we think of uh, Zionist claims that these are natives returning home, and we want to problematize these claims and we want to think of uh, different kinds of futures, it can lead to we should be thinking of the African-American project, the Garveyite project to to return to Africa. Now, second question which I find uh, compelling and very interesting is uh, what does it mean uh, to, to to think of settler and native as kind of joined at the hip, uh, that either they remain together or they are they cease to exist uh, as this as this unity? Um, for, for Zionists to depoliticize themselves uh, would be to cease to exist as Zionists. But for Palestinians to depoliticize, and I will, I will come back to this question. Really, depoliticize. Uh, what does it mean? Do Palestinians have to cease to exist? Um, now, I am. I am talking, when I talk of depoliticization, uh, I don't mean moving away from politics. I really mean moving to a different kind of politics. I mean depoliticizing cultural identities. I mean separating culture from territory, because the politicization of culture is linking culture to territory. And here, of course, I'm referring to very much to the whole question of relationship between ethnicity and tribalism in the, in the African context. But what, it, what would it mean for Palestinians? Would Palestinians cease to exist? No, of course not. But I think the understanding of who is a Palestinian would change. If the nature of the state in historic Palestine, it becomes different. If it is is if it is a state which is predicated, uh, which, is, which is inclusive enough um, so that so that Israeli Israel is Israel, Jews seeking a homeland uh, could become members of that state, citizens of that state. Uh, but not have an exclusive state of their own, then the definition of a Palestinian, assuming that state would still be called Palestine, it may be called something else, the definition of a Palestinian would have to change. Um, And yet, I mean the political definition of a Palestinian. Without, without obliterating the identity of those who have historically been Palestinians and who have resisted as Palestinians. Um, the need for a continuous history of, of resistance, um, a long history of ongoing resistance, uh, I think this is, this is an absolute necessity. Uh, I, I I may for analytical purposes look at uh, different phases but I do so uh, not to claim a, a sort of a each phase to be independent on its own but to show the kind of historical shifts that have taken place in the nature of resistance without in any way claiming that there is no elements of continuity between them. For me, the political project, the political challenge, the political challenge is the following. And this is why I bring together these case studies of the US, South Africa, um, Israel, Palestine, or let me say Palestine in this case. Uh, the, the, The political challenge is The settler state, the political project of the settler state, is to fragment the native population, is to fragment it and to rule each fragment separately, differently, so as to create the basis of a different subjectivity in each case. And the political challenge for the native population, the oppressed population, is twofold. One, to overcome this fragmentation and to bring itself together in the face of a continuing onslaught, but also to isolate to the maximum the settlers, behind the settler state the settlers who remain as the social political base of the settler state. And this requires, in my view, a liberation project and a liberation strategy, which without losing its kernel, its core, its vision, would become as open and as inclusive as possible. This is what the South African uh, uh, movement, liberation movement managed to do. Um, And this, I think, is in many ways uh, an enduring lesson uh, that the rest of us need to learn. Um, I'm glad, Mrana, you pointed out that uh, uh, this is not a critique of BDS uh, because you know, the days and, and, and the decades, it, when a single movement claimed to be the sole representative, the way PLO did, uh, the way the ANC did uh, at one point, uh, those decades are gone. There is no sole representative of the oppressed people. There are different representatives of the oppressed people. The movement itself generated by this mobilization we can read a coherence into that movement without ascribing that coherence to each mobilizing initiative. Um, So I do not expect BDS to take on the mantle of the sole representative of the Palestinian people. And in that sense, this is not a critique of the BDS, but it is addressed to those who would think of BDS and Balad as two alternative ways. I think they need to be joined. I I think this needs to be seen as part of what you call a longer history, a longer history of resistance. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Given that we have so many questions, I'll spare my own questions and give the audience um, to speak. Um, I'll try uh, to put together questions that are somehow similar or touch upon the same theme. So there are two questions about the relevance of the experience of South Africa. Uh, So I'll, I'll read them instead of summarizing them. Actually they are very quite similar. So to what extent can the South African transition serve as a model to Palestine if, as you and others argue, the political decolonization must precede the separation between the state and civil society the political decolonization must precede the separation between state and civil society so this is one question regarding the relation or the uh, south african experience compared to palestine the other question is to what extent can the south african transition can serve as a model to palestine if as you and others argue, the political decolonization presupposes a separation between state and civil society. And the question adds, in recent years, we saw increasing demands for amending the US Constitution with respect to the land question. Many scholars deny it's a post-apartheid moment of discontinuity, but rather a new apartheid constitution that it may have addressed apartheid but not settler colonialism, and that the truth and reconciliation focused on preparation and ignored beneficiaries. Uh, Sorry, I think I made a mistake. In recent years, we saw increasing demands for amending, not the US, the South African constitution. I'm sorry. So do you want me to repeat that one? In recent years, we saw increasing demands for amending the South African constitution with respect to the land question. Many scholars deny that it is a post-apartheid moment of discontinuity, but rather a new apartheid constitution. That it may have addressed apartheid, but not settler colonialism. And that the truth under the situation segregation forced perpetrators and ignored beneficiaries. So let's take these two and then we'll continue. We have many others. Uh, given, let me give you time estimate. We, we have about 40 minutes. And we have lots of questions, so if if you can give each bunch of two questions something around five, six minutes, uh, that that would be fine. We should be fine.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, In South Africa, uh, there were two different uh, political responses. Um, to the uh, extreme violence of apartheid. One was the TRC. The other were the negotiations at Kempton Park. The TRC is the better known initiative. There is an erroneous assumption, very widespread, that the South African model is the result of what was gained through TRC. This is not true at all, for at least two reasons. The TRC was grand theater. The TRC tried to enact on television, more or less, what Nuremberg had done in Germany, which is to assume that responsibility for extreme violence must be traced to individual perpetrators. I don't know how you trace responsibility for an entire set of laws which define the majority of society in racial terms, disenfranchise it, impose restrictions of movement, residence, work, etc. So once you just want to look for perpetrators, you're only looking for the most obvious and superficial violence. You're not looking for violence against those decolonized as a whole. You're going to ignore state violence and ascribe state violence to individual functionaries of the state because in the language of crime, the state cannot commit crime. Crime is against the state. But most importantly, you're going to ignore the political project of the state, which is what the TRC did. The second initiative and the TRC was established much later. What came before the TRC was really the first initiative is the talks at kempton park the talks at kempton park focused on the political project the talks at kempton park brought together the power we know as apartheid and its opposition all all the movements all the movements that that were, that, were, that that fought that were involved in the anti-apartheid struggle to one extent or another. And Kenton Park was basically about not individual perpetrators, but it was about issues. It was bringing together organizations, each of which claimed to have constituencies, instead of looking at individuals It was the negotiation between constituencies and it redefined the political project and the political community we know as South Africa. The second thing I would like to say um, is that uh, And and, and I think this is sort of an underlying theme in in these two questions. And it may come up more explicitly in the other questions, and maybe I should wait for it. Because uh, I don't know, Raif, you'll advise me. What I want to uh, talk about, secondly, is the question of the relationship uh, between social justice and the reorganization of the political community. You want me to wait for that?
0: Actually, no, if you want, you can address that uh, right now because I think we'll shift the focus in the coming questions.
1: Okay. So there is a critique in South Africa, a growing critique. Uh, Nobody in South Africa, nobody significant really says that you you should try, you should take perpetrators to court. That's not a demand. The demand is that 1994, did not address the question of social equality. It did not address the question of social justice. Uh, the beneficiaries of apartheid remained with their ill-gotten gains. Now that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and and I don't deny that at all. Um, but to me, the question is, uh, can you, travel the distance of a thousand miles in one single step or must you go step by step? Can you eat a banana, the whole of it, or must you go bite by bite? In other words, even if the objective and the vision is long-term, how do you divide it? into what comes first, what comes next. In my view, the reorganization of the political community had to be the first one. Marx in his writings on the Jewish question, for example, did not address this question. Marx in his writings talked of the question of citizenship and the question of social justice. But Marx could not address the question of colonies where the resident population had been divided and the colonized population had been divided into different identities, each subject to a different form of rule. If you placed the struggle for social equality, the struggle for social justice before the struggle for rethinking the political community, the chances are that you would have a racial war in South Africa. The chances are that the war against the beneficiaries of apartheid would turn into a war against whites. Chances are instead of being able to differentiate between petty beneficiaries and big beneficiaries, between what South African historians have always distinguished between petty apartheid and grand apartheid, you would end up lumping both of them together. And chances are that you would create a civil war and a war where the terms, where the, where the, where the, where the, where the preconditions for success would be far more difficult. In a struggle where your objective is far more modest, but would strengthen you in the struggle for social justice. That's what I have to say. Thank you.
0: Okay, we have two questions now um, about how to use the colonial, how to distinguish um, so one question is the following: uh, <coughs> that you made that distinction between colonial conquest and racial domination. That means that we should understand you as domination as racial and not colonial, speaking in relation to the African-American.. Um, But this contradicts the understanding within black radical thought that US oppression of black communities is in fact colonial. So what do you have to say about that? And another question, how can your model explain the Algerian and the Zimbabwean experience uh, that actually ended up in separation, total separation? So let's take these two questions now. Uh, And we have lots of more questions, Mahmoud, bear that in
1: mind. Thank you. Um, Well, for me, central to colonial conquest is the conquest of land, okay? Uh, I mean, I'm not talking of a a hierarchy of domination. Uh, I'm just talking of different kinds of domination. Uh, So, If if you don't have a conquest of land, but what you have is a extreme coercion of labor, okay, extreme coercion of labor, uh, whether it is bonded labor or it goes right up to uh, uh, chattel slavery, uh, it's, I mean, it's extreme domination. It's awful. It's terrible. Um, but it's not colonialism, unless we ascribe to colonialism some kind of a moral tag, which says nothing worse in the world than colonialism. Okay. Um, the African American uh, in the nineteenth century. Uh, I mean, and even in the even in the twentieth century, mid twentieth century, and uh, after after the Sort of first alongside the Garvey, Garveyite, but then following the Garveyite movement, there were African Americans who demanded national self determination. They demanded that an African American state be erected in some part of the US, and they tried to define an area where African Americans were a majority. Um, but that's I mean, in my opinion, that would have been a non solution it would have it would have created the same problem of of creating another set of minorities um, the Algerian and the Zimbabwean models I think the Algerian model is probably the more interesting one and 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 really represents a contrast to south Africa um, when Mandela went to uh, uh, In 1962, I think Mandela goes to Algiers and he wants support from the Algerians uh, and he gets support from them. Um, And uh, uh, Mandela is thinking of Algeria as a model. Uh, Then he returns to South Africa. He, there's the Rivonia trial and Mandela is put in jail. Mandela is in jail for 28 years and Mandela comes out and there is some kind of a shift in Mandela's vision and perspective. What is that shift and the reasons for that shift? Besides Algeria, the Algerian model has been followed also in uh, Mozambique, uh, in uh, Angola, uh, before Zimbabwe. And Mandela, I think, concludes uh, that uh, that the way forward is not the Algerian model. The way forward is not uh, that the settlers leave. Uh, The way forward must be to give the settlers an option. So that only the most diehard feel compelled to leave, not the vast majority, as they did in Algeria. The way forward is a notion of citizenship. Of course, the Algerian notion of citizenship was tied to both. Uh, a, well, I, what can I say? Indigeneity and Islam uh, was tied to, was tied to both of them. Um, now, more than Mandela, this this vision, this vision is 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 a result of what happens while Mandela is in jail. Uh, this uh, this vision is a result of the post Steve Biko movement, the post Soweto movement, the post Dur- Durban strikes movement, um, and and Mandela is not part of it. So in many ways, Mandela is very contradictory in his. Uh, uh, responses. Uh, Winnie Mandela far reflects that shift in vision much more. Um, Mandela, Winnie Mandela is a product of not the armed struggle vision from outside, but the product of a popular uprising vision. And Winnie Mandela and that popular uprising, although it's in black communities, townships, but its militants include whites. Okay, Not many whites. I mean, you know, but maybe 80, 100 and then white organizations which come in support, give moral support. Zimbabwe, well, I think the difference between Zimbabwe and South Africa is that in Zimbabwe, the liberation struggle was almost exclusively uh, 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 not joined. By, 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 by white Zimbabweans. Uh, there was no Soweto movement in Zimbabwe. Uh, there was no Biko uh, vision in, in, uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, in Zimbabwe, the movement was shaped and, and, and directed uh, by movements dedicated to armed struggle. Uh, Zimbabwe was a predominantly rural society. Uh, South Africa was not um so different conditions but algeria i think is a far more interesting case i think that's what i have to say
0: okay we'll have uh, let's have other two questions um from listening to the book summary as offered by the author um, I come with an understanding that both the immigrant and the settler are deeply political migrants. How then to ensure that a democratic state without a nation does not turn into yet another liberal articulation of a state impervious to diversity? Let's take that and, um, and then we'll have another two questions.
1: Okay, thank you. So I began with the, uh, with the history of the nation state project. Uh, and, and I began by saying that uh, uh, this project has uh, two histories interconnected, uh, but two different phases. There's a non-liberal phase and there's a liberal phase the non-liberal phase is about complete ethnic cleansing. get the minorities out. okay There must be purity, uh, uh, one territory, one religion, etc. the Iberian project uh, and 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 what what it created in Europe, a century of mm-hmm. uh, of of religious civil wars. Uh, the liberal the liberal project which was supposed to remedy the defects of the non-liberal project was still a nation state project. The liberal project was that the nation uh, tolerate its minorities on one condition, that the minorities accept that they are not sovereign. The nation is sovereign. And the minorities are non-sovereign, the most they can be entitled to are rights in civil society okay so that's the liberal solution the only community the only group identity liberalism accepts as natural is nation none other otherwise liberalism stands for individual rights and only individual rights so the south african solution is not a move to a liberal state it has certain uh, elements of, of 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 liberal legacy mainly Individual rights, but it's not a liberal package. Which it it rejects the notion of a nation state. It rejects the notion of the nation as an ahistorical uh, uh, collective identity. It is willing willing to rethink the collective identity. Now, let me say just one other thing in addition to this. Look, in the book, I don't spend much time. On 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 what you may call the solution, okay. I I talk about decoupling the nation and the state, uh, but I don't spend much time on it because I don't believe that 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 a a professor uh, can come up with a utopian vision in his or her study. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, professors or 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 scholars or 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 movement activists can make coherent that which has been uh, sort of worked out in different aspects of practice uh but but I, I i don't i don't i i'm not i'm not part of those whose business is to is to work out the vision in advance um so so i i don't have much to say about about that uh, what kind of a future uh, what I, what I what I do have much to say about is how has the problem been understood in different places and what are what can we learn from positively or negatively uh, about the kind of action this understanding has led to Thank you.
0: Um, we have still plenty of questions. We we can't take all of them and we have to give some time uh, to Rana to comment but we have a question about the role of uh, religious Muslims or other movement um, and the current critique of secularism. How do they relate, contribute or limit to struggle for decolonization? Where do you, lo- you locate Uh, the role of uh, religion or political movement inspired by religion in the process of
1: decolonization? Well, I think uh, uh, in a way, religious and secular movements have turned out to be, politically, they've turned out to be two sides of the same coin. Secular movements uh, have tended to become uh, state enforced movements, especially in societies where religious movements have a significant uh, uh, social appeal or social mobilization. Um, Secularism has turned into part of the ideology of the state. I mean, in this sense, Talal Assad's critique of, of, of secularism makes sense. Religious movements which aspire to state power have inherited some of the worst characteristics of secular movements, because they have then gone on to define who, 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 who is a, who is a true Muslim and who is not. Exactly the way Zionism went on to define uh, who is a Jew and who is not a Jew uh, and and developed their own uh, national project, a proto-state project in a sense, uh, and unleashed enormous violence, uh, uh, not only against non-religious Muslims, but also against Muslims who they think have been led astray or who are willfully following the wrong path um, so the the religious I would put it in quotes here uh, is, is, has in many ways become kind of a state project uh, So I think'm I'm not, I'm not calling for I mean by by decoupling and by decoupling a state. Uh, uh and 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 uh, and society uh, i'm I'm not calling for an end to or, you know religious identities or non religious identities or anything i'm I'm calling for us to rethink the state in a different way um let's see
0: what um actually before I give a couple of minutes uh can you say more about the idea of the decoupling of the state from the nation. What does it mean? I can understand of decoupling the state from ethnic nation, but the idea or the concept of the nation is parasitic on the concept of the state itself. So to think of the idea of the state is immediately to think of the nation. The question is if the nation actually uh, coincides completely with certain ethnic group or it's actually transcend ethnic or religious groups and in this sense it could be plurality of different groups. But the nation by definition to put the question other way the idea of borders in is inescapable the question is to put the border between one nation and another nation one state and another state or actually um, to create borders uh, between one ethnic group and another ethnic group within the nation itself so i'm not I, i want to ask you this idea of decoupling if you can say more about the idea of of decoupling.
1: Thank you, thank you, Raif. Look, uh, uh, European uh, theory uh, on the question of the nation, uh, draws a distinction uh, between two kinds of nations, ethnic nations and civic nations. The prototype of the ethnic nation is Germany, and of the civic nation, is France. Um, And the liberal solution is to demonize the German alternative and to embrace the French alternative. Uh, I think we need to problematize the French alternative. Uh, The French alternative also draws borders, just like the German alternative and the French alternative uh, claims that the French nation is a civic nation. And therefore everybody, all immigrants who came, come to France, but do, do not partake, do not embrace the civic culture of the French nation, do not become French in this sense, do not assimilate, Must not be considered as being part of the French nation, as part of the sovereign nation. Historically, the European uh, Imperial Project has had two effects. One is segregation and the other is assimilation. Both have been forced, forced segregation and forced assimilation. In pre-modern societies, in pre-modern societies, if I think of the African example, um, forced assimilation has been much more characteristic. Uh, Swahilization, Amharization, Arabization, Hausization, right? Uh, the, these, uh, in, 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 in African society, the historical impulse before colonialism and modernity was always to embrace people who came in, okay? Embrace people who came in and they became part of the group. You became a Muganda provided you spoke Luganda and you married a Muganda and you, and you took into it Baganda culture. But the state, the Baganda state was never understood as just even the Zulu state of Shaka was not understood as just a state of the Zulu, okay? It, there was a dump, some kind of a decoupling of state and nation, state and society. Um, now, as I said earlier, I don't have a vision of this which would give you details, no. But, and, and I do think, I, I, without being nostalgic, I do think that one can, we, we must treat our past our, our non-colonial, pre-colonial past as a resource, not as a model, but as a resource to sift through it, to see what we can take forward and what we cannot. Um, finally, of course, board, the idea of border is inescapable. But the question is, where is the border drawn? The French draw the border inside France, right inside, inside France, uh, uh, so that there are people who are residents of France, but they are not considered French citizens. They may have the passport, but they are not considered part of the sovereignty of of the French state. Um, so that's what I'm talking about,
0: thank you. Okay, uh, that's the plan. Uh, Rana, I'll give you five minute comments, and then I'm going back to you, Mahmoud. You have one minute to conclude and to say thank you. And we're sorry for all those who we couldn't take their questions. We're sorry, we have plenty of questions. So please, Rana.
2: Okay. Um, first, I wanna thank you Raif, because you didn't you didn't get a chance to say very much, did you? So I wanna thank you for giving me your time. Um, and, and, and I'm sure you have a lot to say. Uh, I'll try to sort of echo some of the things that I know that you might be able to say. Um, I, I wanna I want to start with um with the black radical tradition, which is um one of the one of the invitations that Mahmoud gave us. And and it, it's contingent on one of the questions with regards to um how how, how um black struggle in, in the US in particular um is is been articulated. Um and I would just sort of ask all of us, and myself included, to sort of see that praxis that, that Mahmoud's talking about as, as a process and changing. Um, so it, it, W.E.B. Du Bois changed over time himself um, um, in how he thought about reconstruction and, and went into the souls of black folk. Um, and the black radical tradition is a very long one in, in the US um, and it, it has many iterations. One of the iterations that I kind of want to bring to mind is Freddie Hampton, um, because that's, that's part of, you know, that's a city that I grew up in. It's Chicago, and Freddie Hampton's, um, his, he was murdered, um, much like Stephen Biko, very young in life. Um, and, and one of the, one of the reasons uh, a lot of people think he was murdered is because he worked on the ground to create something called the Rainbow Coalition. Um, which still exists in a different kind of iteration. But it was about speaking, not the language of oppression, but speaking with oppression. Um, and he managed to, um, through, his, through his power, through his personality, he managed to, to, to bring together um, the Young Lords, the different, one of the most segregated cities in the US um, had the potential of a movement um, and, it's, and it's an ongoing movement. So this idea of the black radical tradition is an interesting and, and, and enticing one to think about in relation to Palestine, um, along with obviously what I was talking about with regards to indigenous, um, indigenous peoples. It's a very rich one. Um, The second point that I'd like to make is about sort of just reiterating what I was saying earlier, is that not all settler colonialism is the same. And this is something that um, I've said before. And this is a conversation that that has also had about what does it mean to, to be talking about a settler colonialism that's about elimination. It is focused on the land and it isn't about sort of what to do with the native population other than this idea of eliminating the native population. That's a, that's a particular kind of settler colonialism and what does it mean to sort of to put that into conversation with other kinds of settler colonialism, and I think that's an important question with regards to Palestine, and it's a very rich invitation to talk about Palestine in relation to um, indigenous communities um, in North America and Australia. And finally, uh, you know, just with regards to decolonizing the political, and 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 the invitation about a liberation project that might end up politically. Uh, and, and also culturally um, redefining or working to redefine what it is to mean to be Palestinian. I wanna echo what you were just saying. Um, um, and you know, this return to the source of Cabral is that history does actually invite us to think about things. And so one part of the history of the PLO is 1968. It's something that has been in a lot of ways um, We've been forced to forget that moment because after 1974, the nation state and a drive towards a nation state became such a phenomenally integral part of what the armed struggle was in the 70s, and what and and it's resulting in what we have today, the Malays of 2020. But in 1968, the Charter of the PLO did actually articulate a democratic state for all of the people who were on the that included that was to include the people who had settled, settlers who were in Palestine. Um, it, didn't, it, it didn't get traction, only in the sense that um, it changed uh, pretty quickly because of the leadership in the PLO. And by 1974, we see the 10 point plan and this idea of a, a state on a part of Palestine and not the idea of liberating all of historical Palestine. But that that is an instructive moment um, because it, it has been a part of the Palestinian, you know, Palestinian this ongoing resistance and a part of the Palestinian past, but it's also part of the Palestinian present, and that's just one thing that I want to remind myself and everybody about is that you know these challenges about what it you know what it means to be Palestinian is also an ongoing, um, is also an ongoing and ever changing. Um, it's not necessarily in the context of exclusion, but that's what I, that was. What I was I was inviting. Um, what is it if we think about Palestinians um, and not only think about the fragmentation of Palestine and try to think about sort of a, a people? Um, and I and I use the language of layers. We're in different um, we're in different spaces geographically, um, and that's it. That there is my conclusion. Well, if I just wanted to, the last word I'll say is thank you to everybody. Um, Thank you, Mahmoud, for writing a 400-page book.
0: (laughs) 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 Mahmoud, please, uh, Uh, concluding uh, remark of one and a half minutes.
1: I promise to write a shorter book next time. (laughs) Uh, But I just want to say one thing, which which is uh, 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 sort of a a comment on the Fred Hampton uh, uh, story. Um, because I, I think the, the American lesson in a way sums up a very general lesson. Uh, the contrast between African American and an American Indian, the Indian. Uh, the Americans not only fragmented Indians into separate reservations, but also imposed a forced isolation on each one of them. Uh, the 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 advantage, the possibility, uh, for the African American, for the African slave, because they were part of a one-state solution, was that they had the possibility of building alliances. Okay, and 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 part of their internal story was was a contest between whether to build alliances or to go it alone, and and in some ways it was a, it, those who went wanted to go alone were saying before you can build an alliance, you've got to, we can understand them as saying, you've got to marshal your own forces, get yourself, get your own act together uh, uh, before, before, you start, before you can even hope to shake hands with others. Uh, so in a way, these are not just uh, 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 sort of absolute alternatives. Uh, there's, a, there's a kernel that has to be grasped from each side, but overall, I think the alliance building strategy is critical there is no future enforced isolation. Thank you very much Raif, thank you very much Rana, thank you very much uh, the organizers of this event and those of you who have attended it. I've certainly learned a lot from this exchange, thanks.
0: Thank you all, thank you Mahmoud, thank you Rana, thank you um, IPS and uh, hopefully we'll meet uh, again in some future events. So good night everybody, see you later.
2: Thank you.